Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, hey everyone, welcome to the show. We are continuing through Revelation, and today we're going to be in chapter 8 today. At least chapter Chapters 8. eight and 9. We'll be in chapter eight today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean. We're dealing with it as a whole, but sure. Yeah. As we ended our last episode, we discussed the Israel-Palestine issue and we do record a few weeks ahead. And so while we were recording it, when we recorded, we were a couple days into this conflict. It is this episode, that episode didn't air for a couple of weeks. So this episode is even going to be even later. So in real time, we're not even a week into this conflict. We're uh, no, a little over a week, week and a half into the conflict. Oh, it was Saturday. Right? That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's yeah. a little over. Uh, so yeah, like what? Nine days. Or 10 or days. 10 days. Yeah. Or yeah. Nine yeah. days. Yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. Nine, 10 days. Yeah. I don't know. Did you, did you have any other thoughts as after we last chatted about it? What I expressed in the last one a, a little bit, obviously, you know, the problem with this conversation, of course, is that there's so much politicizing and, and, and theological and biblical things at stake there that you can't say one thing without saying a caveat for the, for the other, you know, and it's hard to cover all your bases and stuff. And, and it just is. It's, it's a complicated issue. And the, the main concern is the fact that there are innocent lives suffering on both sides. Right, so mm-hmm. first off, we absolutely vehemently condemn Hamas and their activities of terrorism. And if you want to call it war, it's still war crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that needs to be denounced, and this is not right. Um, but we, I think I expressed in the last uh, th- this discussion the fear, and I wrote a couple blogs, of course, on this that re- that went live a, a week ago as we're recording. The fear is that Israel is going to respond with greater force than Hamas inflicted, because that's just mm-hmm. been the pattern. Israel's just always done that. And again, whether Israel's justified in this or not is even off the table. The point of that is that more lives and more innocent people are going to suffer, and that's what we've been seeing in the last 10 days. The way I would phrase it is this, no nation can adopt Jesus's ethic and survive. Mm-hmm. You can't go to Vladimir Putin and say, hey, if you slap me on the right cheek, Vladimir, I'm going to love you and mm-hmm. give you my other one also, because you're just going to be destroyed. Uh, and so that tells us that the church should step back from, an, from a, uh, something of this nature and go, we're not really on any side. We're on the side of peace and justice. Sure, we're on the side of the innocent and the oppressed, but now the innocent and the oppressed are, are really both sides. And so we understand why Israel's responding. We get it. They have to defend themselves. We get it. But uh, the reality, of course, is that this is a conflict that's going to bring tremendous suffering for everyone. And the church's responsibility really is to advocate for peace and say, we need to advocate for a peaceful solution to this because innocent lives are, are going to suffer. I mentioned to you right before one last thing, and I say one last thing, but as the last episode learned, that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. But I'll have a briefing tomorrow with some, uh, some of the leading rabbis in the United States, so I'll get a strong Jewish uh, perspective on things and, and a little bit of Israeli, but mostly Jewish perspective. And then I'll get a lot of a briefing this weekend uh, from a number of Palestinian Christians. I did a blog that, that went live on Saturday as we're recording, which I don't know, October 14th or whatever it was, that uh, this has at the beginning a testimony from a Christian in Gaza. So if you want to look at that on determinedtruth.com, just click on the blog tab. So uh, that's some thoughts there. But uh, yeah, it's uh, anything that you want to add or any of your thoughts, Vinny? It just as I've seen more and more people process this on social media, the processings that are unhelpful right. are the ones that lack the most nuance. And so just to make this a binary, right? Israel is good, Palestinians are bad, um, or even not, and, and I don't, can't even begin to um, understand this, but over the weekend, over this past weekend, so that, that weekend would have been what the 
14th and 15th. You see a lot of demonstrations <laughs> of in October. major, uh, yeah, of October in, in major cities, you know, yes, San Francisco, yes. New York, right. these places. And uh, I'm, I'm sure there are going to be some Palestinians who are sympathetic toward Hamas. <laughs> so let's not pretend like it's, you know, it sure. gets the nuance yeah, yeah. of it. But for the most part, that's not true. But but you're right. There are going to be some. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the thing. That's where nuance comes in to, to assume that a Palestinian protesting right now it means they're protesting in favor right. of what Hamas is doing, even because maybe there were a handful of protesters who were in favor of Hamas. Right, right. That doesn't mean that that's what uh, uh, the right. situation is equating. And so just to just to make it a binary good, bad, it's just so it, it's it's way more difficult than that. It's, and we yeah. need to be more nuanced. Right. And the ones that are protesting for Palestine are protesting because Hamas has brought to light an issue mm-hmm. of oppression. And that's what and like, hey, that's what we're protesting about. The other thing, though, of course, is that there's also been a rise of anti-Semitism because people are like, hey, let's take care of the moment. Let's take advantage of the moment. And the the moment is is Jews are are bad. And and, and so there's a rise of anti-Semitism. I'm sure I'll hear a lot about that tomorrow. Uh, And if so, I'll bring up some updates on our our episode next week. So, yeah. 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 All right. Good. Well, so for today, we're going to be like we said, we're we're at least going to start in Revelation chapter eight. Sure. We'll say we'll go through nine as well. We Uh, won't go through nine as well, but we're going to discuss this as a whole. Okay. yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're going to start looking at the seventh seal and then the seven trumpets. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this section is very complicated. Uh, Barbara Rossing, who I'd love to have on the podcast, and we're trying to get her and see if we can get her. Um, she says the middle chapters of Revelation are unquestionably the most difficult aspect of the book. And I think these two chapters, Revelation chapters eight and nine, that's what we're going to discuss them as a whole. We probably won't get into even chapter eight today, to be honest with you, maybe the first six verses, but. I think we've been reading these chapters wrong for a long time, especially not just in the popular world. You know, usually we say, well, the popular world of mm-hmm. Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye, they say, the, you know, but even in the scholarly world, and I think what I'm going to say now might actually get pushback even amongst some scholars. But about 11 months ago, as you and I are talking now, I was working on the final draft of my, cha- of my commentary in the book of Revelation on chapters eight and nine on this section. And I began realizing that what I had written in the first five or six drafts, right? I'm on like, you know, edit number six or seven now actually didn't work. And I was, I thought, okay, I got a theory and maybe this works. I, I had rejected kind of this popular understanding that even the scholarly world was adhering to, because it just didn't make sense for the reasons that we'll discuss. I thought, well, maybe this is the way to read it. And then I began looking at the text even more in depth. And I'm like, no, this doesn't work. You know, what I have written is wrong. And um, I began realizing I, I must have spent over a hundred hours over the course of three or four weeks, plus working a full-time job, um, rewriting and rewriting and rewriting these chapters. Hmm. When I finally went, I got it. I figured it out. There were two things in the text that we'll look at here as we go, we go on that just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense in light of the common reading that even the scholars, scholars are adhering to. And it didn't make sense in light of the, 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 the proposition that I had and I'm like, okay, this, uh, what are we going to do here? What are we going to do with this? And so it finally came together. I'm like, I got it. So it was crazy. Okay. So what are some of the ways then that we've been reading it wrong? And, and you would say, this isn't the popular stuff that we push back on the um, end of the world type of stuff, but you're right. saying even in the scholarly world, like what, what would they say? What what would be the scholarly consensus if there is one? I mean, okay. maybe we cast that in a wide net because uh, I yep. know there's going to be nuance and different perspectives. And how would you offer a different uh, okay. idea? So the popular understandings, let's distinguish between popular understanding 
the scholarly world's understanding and then what I'm going to say. And, and what I'm going to say, we'll, we'll explain as we, as we proceed. Popular understanding is that the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls are God's wrath upon the wicked people. It happens in the last seven years, the last three and a half years of history. And God's going to inflict wrath on these people so that they are brought to repentance. And they, the idea is that they repent. So God loves them. I'm sorry I killed your daughter, but uh, hopefully you'll learn the lesson and repent, you know, be, and, and not happen what happened to her because you're all going to go to hell if you don't. Right? That kind of understanding that just really rubs me the wrong way. And it should rub everyone the wrong way. Like that just doesn't seem to work with the God of love that I, that I know of in, this, in the scriptures, especially as revealed by Jesus. The scholarly world will commonly say that, yes, indeed, God does inflict wrath. It may transpire over the course of history or millennia or whatever, but it is God's doing, the seven trumpets at least. They don't necessarily say that with the seven seals. So what we discuss with the seven seals is pretty widely agreed upon, even in the scholarly world. But the, yeah, this is the seven trumpets and seven bowls are not necessarily describing what actually transpires in a literal sense, but they're describing God's wrath upon the world in some gener generic sense that happens maybe over the course of millennia or since the resurrection of Jesus, but not necessarily in the last seven and a half years or whatever. Uh, and th that's kind of the general idea. All right. I am not the only one, however, that's objecting to that, to even the scholarly uh, uh, agenda. I think I'm the, from what I can see, I'm the only one that's put this whole thing together and said, hey, okay, here's how we understand the whole text. So David Barr, who's a phenomenal scholar in the book of Revelation, people might say he's more of the centrist or left side. That, that, that doesn't matter. He's a phenomenal biblical scholar. And he says this, he says, to punish people for their deeds is to assume that they are responsible for their deeds and that they have chosen them, that they have free will. But if violence is used to coerce behavior, in other words, if God's bringing violence to coerce them, then free will disappears. If you put a gun in someone's back and demand their wallet, you cannot later claim that they gave it of their own free will. The choice between dying and giving up your wallet is not a real choice. So he's saying if God's giving violence to coerce them to repent, then they don't really have freedom in this repentance because mm -hmm. they, they're repenting so that they don't have to suffer more violence. Mm -hmm. And that's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. David De Silva, whom we had on our podcast and is probably the preeminent Revelation scholar today, maybe surpassing uh, a G.K. Beale, says... The trumpets and bowls do not lay out a playbook for the end times, but narrate the systematic destruction of Caesar's world and the order allegedly upheld by Caesar's, Caesar's gods as the one true God makes room for God's kingdom. Now, I don't think that the Silva is going to say, okay, God's not behind this. I, I, we'll have to nuance that, that a little bit. Let me go back to David Barr again with a couple more quotes here. Barr, Barr adds, he says, the first moral issue that this story raises for me is how can a story that glorifies war and violence be considered moral? The second moral issue I face concerns the issue of the overwhelming power to coerce obedience. And this is the key statement. He says, if God triumphs over evil only because God has more power than evil, then power, not love or freedom or goodness or truth, is the ultimate value of the universe. Right? That statement got me thinking, yeah, this is not, this cannot be about God inflicting wrath and violence on the world to try to drive them to repentance or whatever. You know, hey, you're just getting what you sow. It's like, because God would be behaving just like the nations do. This is what the nations do. They inflict violence and suffering on people. And that's what, what goes on there. Right, Barr then goes on to say, in short, if Revelation is read as a story about some future event when God and or Jesus will dramatically intervene in human affairs and coerce obedience, 
it raises complex moral issues. And these moral issues are never faced by the popular readings of the book of Revelation. So you can see Barth especially uh, arguing against the popular readings. Let me actually clarify a, a few things on that. Because when you had mentioned, you'd made that kind of parenthetical comment about mm -hmm. getting what you sow. That was your mm -hmm. words. That wasn't bar. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Thank you. How does that, so I see a distinction between what he, what he would be pushing back against, uh, like God inflicting violence in order to coerce someone to repent. Like, right. Right. Like that, that makes sense. Uh, and that, that seems like a, a consistent biblical ethic. But we had talked about like Romans one and giving someone yes. over. So what's the right. difference between giving someone over or reaping what you sow? I I would use those that kind of idea. Yes, similarly. I, I, yeah. How is that different than God coercing? Which I, I would say I think they're different. But how how are yeah? Okay. Are you saying that they're so, different? Or, uh... Yes, I am. They are different. Oh, they overlap. So let uh, okay. me know two things. One, I am not denying the fact that there is going to be a day, judgment day, when they will reap what they sow. Mm -hmm. So the idea of God inflicting violence or suffering. And what to ask, well, what does that look like? What, what does the second death mean? What does the lake of fire mean? Let's we'll address that then. But there is a final judgment where at the end, all people are judged in accordance with their deeds, right? Mm -hmm. That's clear. Now, the question is whether that happens prior to it or not, with the idea being that God's inflicting suffering only partially so that you can be drawn to repentance. And that's what mm -hmm. Barr's arg arguing against. Now, the idea of Romans 1, and I think this is the nuance that De Silva would make. I'm not sure. I think he would go further than I am. But what you do see in Revelation 8 and 9, and you do see in the biblical text, is that God's sovereign. There's no question about that, that God is in control. But you see this in the Old Testament prophets also. God's like, I'm going to uh, judge you people and kick you out of the land. You're, you, you guys have, have disobeyed my covenant. You might be my beloved people, but I'm sending you out of the land. And then what happens? The Babylonians come in and conquer the Jewish people and conquer the tribes, the southern tribes of Judah. So did God do it? Yeah, but God did it by bringing the Babylonians in and allowing the Babylonians to conquer. You have that kind of going on. So in the, Romans 1, I think, fits perfectly with this, with, with what's happening here, because Romans 1 says God gave them over. Uh, the idea being they are suffering the consequences of what they deserve and their own actions have brought this destruction. And I think in the Bible Project uh, podcast and their studies with Tim Mackey does a wonderful job of this as well. I think Tim Mackey actually argues that the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 is actually God allowing it to happen. God saying, well, this is your own actions and this is the consequence. I think he actually argues that God speeds up the process, hmm. but the process of inevitable destruction is what you're doing, what you're bringing on. And I think that's what's happening here in Revelation 8 and 9 and the whole biblical text as well as you're getting what you deserve and I'm allowing it to happen. And the biblical authors are portraying God as the sovereign one in control of these things. Does that, make, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, so help, okay. help me understand that. Well, let's get into this text a little yeah. bit and figure it out. So, uh, or in, at least understand what we're talking about. So okay, yeah. the first uh, handful of verses of uh, chapter eight, we want to go through? Chapter eight, yeah, let's read verses eight, uh, chapter eight, verses one through six. Okay. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. So here's what we, 
what we've discussed so far. We noted that after the sixth seal was broken in chapter six, verses 12 through 17, that we were expecting the seventh seal to be broken next. And then the contents of the scroll is going to be revealed. But all of a sudden, chapter seven, verses one through 17 is an interlude that we discussed for a couple of different weeks. In the interlude, John affirms that the people of God are divinely sealed and protected. And as we said, the interlude seems to go backwards in narrative time to say that, that the 144,000 might persevere the effects of the seventh of the first four seals, at least. And we also found out that in this interlude, that those who ultimately are faithful will come through the great tribulation and enter into the glorious presence of God. And that was the great multitude account. So now in chapter eight, verse one, we go back to the seventh seal. There we go. It's broken. But the contents of the scroll are not revealed again. I know it's worth, okay, okay, we've got there now. The seventh seal is broken. What's on the scroll? Instead, John introduces the seven trumpets in verse two. I'm like, what's going on there? Uh, why do we not find out what's on the scroll? What's happening here? And I think that's an important question that we need to ask. So this next section that we get into then, the, the seven trumpets that begins in verse six, this is that section that we talked about that is traditionally understood as God bringing his wrath on creation in order for people to repent. Um, and so that that's where we're actually getting into now, right? Exactly. That, that That's how it's been commonly understood. And as we said at the beginning here, that's not what's going on here. And I think John's giving us an indication that's, that that's not what's going on. Okay. So, so I mentioned, do, well, I, I just want to say like, how do you, how do you begin to think differently about this? Because it, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you, you shed a popular perspective yes. on revelation years ago, you know, uh, right. Yeah. I did. You know, the yeah. lay person popular, you've been in the scholarly realm. You've, you did a PhD where you focused on the book of revelation. You've read all the commentaries what causes you now, you know, 15, 20 years after earning your PhD in this book, what causes you now to rethink how you read this section? Okay. So what first caused me to get th to think that maybe we need to rethink this are statements like David Barr, statements like, and others. So this is, I'm not alone. There's, there's a number of scholars, including Richard Baucom, whom I know you know, Vinny, as one of the most preeminent scholars in the mm -hmm. New Testament world. And they're making comments like, hey, this doesn't seem to square with the revelation of Jesus as God is love. And for God to love the world, he gave us only begotten. And God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. And we have all these verses throughout the New Testament going, hey, okay, this seems to like contradict this a little bit here and, and, hmm. and what's going on. So that got me rethinking there. But then I thought, well, okay, maybe this is what's happening in the seven trumpets. And then as I was editing my chapters, I'm like, yeah, no, that ain't right either. But what I then began to find like 11 months ago when I was reviewing the chapters and, and doing what I thought was the final edit, and it just took me four weeks to do, uh, was that there were some clues in the text that made me realize uh, that what we've been saying is not correct and that we need to rethink things and that John wants us in another direction. And it took me like four weeks and about 100 hours or more worth of work to go, okay, now I realize why the, what these clues are, are indicating. But they were there, and I just couldn't figure out what they were doing, and they just didn't make any sense. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge, and this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind-the-scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. 
So you've noted that the the seven seals, it's not about God's wrath on the world right. to get them to repent. But it's it's pretty clear that, you know, the you know, the seven seals, at least the first of four, uh, include things that normally happen when humanity rules and, and they're suffering because this is what happens when <laughs> when when people right. are in charge. Even the people of God suffer when humanity is ruling, right? Yeah. And so there's no question that that's the proper interpretation of the seven seals. And that's widely being recognized even in the scholarly world today, that the seven mm-hmm. seals are not God's wrath causing people to suffer after the Christians are raptured up, and that we Christians or those who get saved you know, uh, after the rapture are exempt from any suffering. Uh, the seals are what happens when humanity remains in power and that's clear. We discussed this pl- plentyfold uh, with uh, the parallel between Matthew uh, 24 and Mark 13, that Jesus's indication of things are going to go on as normal to be wars and earthquakes and famines. This is just the way it is. And that's what the seven seals are, are describing. It's clear then the first four seals are not God's wrath and that they depict what happens when humanity rules. Now, I had a good friend who's a Revelation scholar, and I was asking him to, after I had kind of, hey, I think I figured out what Revelation 8 and 9 are doing. And I said, hey, would you read one of my drafts? He's like, oh, I, I, I'm really interested because he says, I get it with the seven seals, why we think the seven seals are not God's wrath, but the result of human rule. But how did you figure out the seven trumpets? Because mm. I'm thinking that same way too, but I can't figure it out. So mm. so what are some of the key features of uh, chapters eight and nine that led you to believe that John's doing something different than the popular understanding of God's wrath? So there's two things happening in this section and if you're listening here, I want you to pay attention carefully and maybe listen to it a second time. If you're able to have a Bible out, get your Bible out uh, and uh, look at the text so that we can see it more carefully. All right. So if we skip to chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, we'll notice that actually it's the seventh trumpet. So the seventh trumpet actually occurs in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And there it says, the seventh angel sounded in verse 15. There were loud voices in heaven, this is chapter 11. And it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is the end, and we'll discuss that later. The 24 elders who sit on the thrones in verse 16 fell down and worshiped God. Verse 17, they say, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who who are and who were, and notice the phrase, who who is, who was, and who is to come has changed. The one uh, who is to come is left off. Who are and who were, in verse 17, because you've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged to give your reward to your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Hmm. And that's what didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. This last phrase, what do you mean to destroy those who destroy the earth? It's like, what are you talking about? If the first four trumpets, if you look at the first four trumpets in chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, I believe it is, The first trumpet affects the land. The second trumpet affects the sea. The third trumpet affects the rivers and springs of water, which is salt water and then fresh water. So second seal, second trumpet's uh, salt water. Third trumpet is fresh water. The fourth trumpet affects the sun, the moon, and the stars. So you have in these four trumpets, basically the total destruction of creation, the four aspects of creation. If God's the source, so let's go back. Even the scholars think that God's the one doing this. Mm -hmm. Then chapter 11, verse 18, he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. Doesn't make any sense because he's the one destroying the earth. So that's the first key. Like, wait a minute. Let me me go back. 
chapter 11, verse 18 bothered me. I couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. Why is, first off, why is it singled out? Like, hey, the time came for the dead to be judged and to give you a reward to your bond servants, the saints and the prophets, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Like, why is that in there? It, it didn't seem to fit anything at all. In fact, I can remember a little anecdote here, and I know we got a lot to discuss. But a, a number of years ago, I was uh, talking with one of the congregants in my church, and I'm like, uh, we were talking about global warming and the reality that most evangelicals don't really believe in global warming, but I knew he did. And I'm like, you know, look, there's a statement here in Revelation 11, 18, God's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. I don't know what it's doing in the text. And I, I didn't know. I, I really mm -hmm. didn't know what it was doing. I said, but it really seems to indicate that those who bring destruction on the earth, God's going to destroy them. And it seems mm -hmm. to fit with this conversation of global warming, that like we're destroying the earth and God's going to destroy you for destroying it. After all, we were created to rule over the earth and subdue it and care, and care for it. So that was the first one. The second issue, so what's 1118? Why is he saying destroy those who destroy the earth? The second issue that really bothered me is the complex structure that introduces the seven trumpets. And it indicates that something's going on. So let, we'll kind of let's flush through that a little bit more as, as we go along. Okay. So when we look back at chapter eight, verses one through six, how how is what's happening here relate to your idea then? So what's happening is this. The first thing to understand with chapter eight, verses one through six is we have to continue to remember that John's writing a narrative and he's advancing a narrative. He's not revealing the future as if like, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen within some aspect of history or some historical thing. It's a vision in which John's telling a grand story. So in, even as you jumped ahead to chapter 11 and it's sounding like the end and, and like I'm even reading a uh, similar language in uh, what is it 19 with there's flashes of lightning and rumbles yeah. and peals of thunder it, it's like you're hearing the same yeah, yeah. sort of thing it, it's obvious we're not reading a historical account from a linear standpoint john's right. doing something else right exactly the fact that john's actually narrating uh, a story and i don't like using the word story because for american listeners story sounds like it's not necessarily a Fiction. true story it's just yeah. a story right. mm -hmm. but he is he's writing a narrative the first clue is is that there's actually a literary progression in the seals, trumpets, and bowls. In other words, when you read the seven seals, it affects one-fourth of humanity. And that's the first four seals. When you read the first, the seven trumpets, the first four trumpets actually affect one-third of creation. And that mm -hmm. distinction is going to be important, but it's one-third. Then when you go to the seven bowls, which occurs in chapter 16, you find out that the devastation affects the entirety of creation. And there might even be something to suggest that the seven um, thunders that are not told about in chapter 10, John seals them up, that maybe they affected one half. It makes sense. We just don't, we just don't know. But the idea is you go from one fourth to one third, possibly to one half to one whole. So four, three, two, one mm -hmm. uh, is the fraction. That's your first indication that this is a narrative because we see this literary advancing, this progression in the, in the way the story is being told. The second clue is that the seventh, seal, seventh trumpet, and seventh bowl all bring us to the end of the story. So the seventh seal that we didn't discuss yet, but it says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That is commonly the silence associated with judgment, that God brings him before mm. the throne and says, what do you have to say for yourselves? 
And like in the book of Isaiah, they were idols that had their mouths plastered over. They couldn't speak. They have nothing to say to themselves. Mm. There's no defense before God's throne. So that seems to suggest, and not everyone agrees with that, but it's widely believed that the seventh seal is the final judgment. The seventh trumpet is clearly the final judgment. You who are and who were, it's no longer the one who is to come, right? And that your time has come for the, to judge mm. the dead. It's clearly this is the end. And then the seventh bowl is without question the end. And we won't get into that just for the sake of time. But if you read the seventh bowl in chapter uh, 16, you'll see, I think it starts in verse 17 uh, through 21 or something of that nature. Uh, and then the other thing is, and you actually, you actually alluded to this, Vinny, and that is each of the three series of seven, so the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, all close with a reference to what we call the theophanic manifestation. That sounds like a very big word. It's actually two big words. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of letters, a lot yeah. of consonants there. A, a theophanic manifestation goes back to the throne room. So theophan, so theos of God, and then manifestation, a, a manifestation of God, some phenomena that's happening with a revelation of God's presence. How's that? That's what maybe mm -hmm. how we might define a theophanic manifestation. Okay. So here's the first one, and this is a, a very significant clue that John is writing a narrative. Let, let me re reiterate. The first one is you have the, the seals, trumpets, and bowls, one-fourth, one-third, one-whole. The second one is the seventh in each of the items clearly brings us to the end. The third clue is that at the end of each of the series of seals, trumpets, and bowls, we have this revelation of the theophanic manifestation. And the first occurrence of what we call the theophanic manifestation was in chapter four, verse five. So chapter four is a throne room. And John says that he saw coming from the throne, chapter four, verse five, came flashes of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder. That's a theophanic manifestation, some phenomena that happens when John sees God on his throne. And mm -hmm. notice that it comes from the throne, because remember the throne room scene is the key to the whole story, right? It, that's really essential. Obviously, that's where the, the scroll comes from. Then each of the series of seals, trumpets, and bowls are going to quote that. They're going to go back to chapter four, verse five and quote it, but they're all going to add something to it. So every time the theophanic manifestation occurs at the end of the seven seals, at the end of the seven trumpets, and at the end of the seven bowls, it gets longer. Mm -hmm. So in chapter eight, verse five, the second occurrence says there were peals of thunder, sounds, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And so now we see an earthquake is being added. At the end of the seven trumpets, which you actually read in chapter 11, verse 19, it says there were flashes of lightning and sounds, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. And so now you see that John's added, and a hailstorm. And what's happening is, is that the repetition of the theophanic manifestations, flash of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder, is the way to mark the ending of each of the series of sevens. Mm. So the series of seven seals ends in chapter eight, verse five, and that's important. We'll get to in a minute. In chapter eight, verse five, with the sounds of th peals of thunder, sounds, flash of lightning, and an earthquake. The seven trumpets end in chapter 11, verse 19, with and great hail. And then in chapter 16, verses 17 through 21, not only does the theophanic manifestation recur, but the expression takes five verses. There are flash of lightning sounds, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, such as there had never been since man was upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and a tenth of the great city fell. It, and then it says, and there were a great hailstorm. In fact, they were so heavy that they weighed a talent, which 
like a hundred pounds each or whatever your translations might say. You have five verses describing the theophanic manifestation. So clearly they all refer back to the throne room. So there's your narrative link to the throne room and they expand each time, each time getting longer or adding more detail. And therefore that, that becomes the key links. If the theophonic manifestation marks the end of the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, that means that in 8.5, when we, when we see that phrase, that marks the end of the seven seals. Exactly. And so that's the first clue that started to hit me. And I went, wait a minute, mm. something's going on. So if you're listening, you're listening carefully here. And you can listen to this, but if you have your Bibles, it's even better. In chapter 8, verse 1, we have the seventh seal. So remember the first six seals in chapter 6, an interlude in chapter 7. Chapter 8 opens up. He broke the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for half an hour. We now think we're done because chapter eight, verse two, I saw seven angels who had seven trumpets. So, okay, great. We've gone from the seals to the trumpets. Then in chapter eight, verse five, we have the theophanic manifestation, which tells us this is the end of the seven seals. But we thought, well, wait, we thought the seals already ended because he introduced the seven trumpets in chapter eight, verse two. Then we go to chapter eight, verse six, and that's why we read verse six there. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. So what that means is eight, one, seven seal, eight, two, seven trumpets are introduced. Eight, five, the end of the seven seals narrative. Eight, six, the seven trumpets. And we have this overlapping. And my question became, why is John overlapping the end of the seven seals and the beginning of the seven trumpets? It seems mm -hmm. to suggest that we need to read the seals and the trumpets in light of one another. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. In, in the section, though, in verses three and four, you have this angel ah. with a sensor in the middle of this, right? Mm-hmm. What do we do with this? That's sentence? even more complexity. Now, so not only does 8182-8586 go seals, trumpets, seals, trumpets, says he's overlapping them, but we skipped verses three and four. And in verses three and four, there's an angel with a golden censer. And note in verse three and in verse four, in both verses, it refers to the prayers of the saints. Right? So chapter eight, verse three, it says, he had a golden censer, much incense was given him so that he can add it to the prayers of all the saints. And then in chapter eight, verse four, it says, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints. So not only is this in the middle of the end of the seals and the beginning of the trumpets, but clearly he references the prayers of the saints. And that tells us that we're supposed to read the end of the seals and the beginning of the trumpets in light of the prayers of the saints. And I'm like, why? Hmm. So the problems that I had was, why does 11.18 refer to those who destroy the earth if God's the one destroying the earth? And why does the, the narrative seem to overlap the seven trumpets with the seven seals? By the way, the seven bowls don't overlap anything. The seven bowls are just, they're all by themselves. There's, there's an overlapping, but it's not an overlapping with the seven trumpets. Hmm. But the seals and trumpets overlap. And then why do we have this interjection about the prayers of the saints in the middle of all this? So looking at the seven seals and trumpets overlapping i know that there's a relationship between or at least an allusion to to reading these in light of the plagues uh, in egypt in the book of exodus so what should we do with that 
Okay, so the, what actually is the case is the trumpets and the bowls both use Exodus imagery. So the, and this is the problem that I had. It's common that we read the trumpets and the bowls in light of one another. Did I say trumpets and seals? You did. Yeah, that, totally I, fine. And I meant trumpets and bowls. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally fine. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, is John's telling us to link the seals and trumpets together. Mm-hmm. But we commonly read the trumpets and bowls together because they mm -hmm. both make heavy use of Exodus imagery. Yeah. Remember, the bowls are just going to increase the Exodus imagery to where it's like it affects the whole thing. Like all the water became blood, whereas with the trumpets, only one third of the waters become blood. And obviously mm -hmm. that's Exodus imagery where the Nile becomes blood. So that's the first problem there. So we have to figure out, like, well, what's going on with the seals and the trumpets then? So... What is this relationship then between the seals and the trumpets? Well, I'm glad you asked. And you know how we've said all along, Vinny, we're not going to hide things behind a paywall. I think we need to, because this is like so important. This is a big one. Huh? So if you send in a thousand dollars and then mark your check with like seals and trumpets, then we'll, we'll send you a prayer hanky. And when you submerge the prayer hanky in water, it's going to reveal the answer. Wow. It, it will, will this be on the back of the declaration of independence? No. Okay. <laughs> Why would you say that? <laughs> oh, that's because of that movie. Exactly. Okay. I see. I, I'm, I'm quick. I'm quick. Thank you. Yeah, you're really quick. I got it. That, that, that's right. So, and by the way, the holy water you need to dip the hanky into is also available for sale for an additional thousand dollars, but you have to pay extra shipping and handling. And oh, and it's only for the first 100 callers. Got it. Okay. And we're limiting to only two. So if you, but if for two, you need to send in $10,000. But it's thought, just a special. It's just the way so it works. So it's limited to the first hundred callers, but it's only for two. Well, you can only oh, get two, two for yourself. Okay, got it. Got it. Got it. Got yeah. It. Yeah. But you have to pay ten thousand dollars to get two. It's a thousand for one, but ten thousand for two. It's, it it's, like it's, it's heavenly math. It's just it's it's apocalyptic math. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's going to work out really well for you. This well, it's for the ministry. I mean, for the kingdom. <laughs> yeah, for the for the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so. for the children. Uh, well, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, Justin, Jordan, Jared, and yeah, not your, your grandchildren, not your actual. Children. Oh yeah. Oliver and, and, and Holland. Yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. I, almost, I almost forgot about them. So, yeah. okay. Uh, anyways, here we go. The relationship between the seals and the trumpets is this. The first clue is that the seals and the trumpets each have a four, three pattern. Hmm. Now that was obvious with the seven seals. The first four seals each reference one of the four living creatures. After he breaks this, one of the seals, then he sees a rider on a very, various colored horse. Uh, he hears a loud voice saying, come, and he describes the, the particular seal. The first four seals are clearly li linked together. The fifth seal, John sees the souls under the altar, whereas the first four seals, he hears a voice saying, come. So clearly the first four seals are linked. The first four trumpets are also linked by the fact that they come in very quick succession. And then after the fourth trumpet, it says in verse 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle. This is Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. I looked and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So the first four trumpets and the last three trumpets are clearly marked from one another because the last three trumpets we actually call the, the, four, the three woes. And in fact, at the end of each of the first well, of the first two of the woes, meaning the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet, it says the first woe is passed, and then it says the second woe is passed. So you have the length of the trumpets. The first four are pretty quick. The fifth one takes up like 10 or 11 verses in chapter 11 and chapter 9. And the sixth one takes up another eight, nine verses in chapter 9. 
And then the seventh one occurs, well, fairly rapidly, but it still takes up like five verses, but they're marked off by the three woes. Mm. So the seals and trumpets, they're both similar. They have a four, three pattern. Any other similarities? Okay. So that's the first clue that the, the seals and trumpets, well, obviously they're overlapping. The introduction of the seals and trumpets are overlapping. The second is the, the seals and trumpets both have a four, three pattern, which I'm amazed when I started realizing this, that scholars haven't brought that out because they're so consumed with linking the trumpets and the bowls because of the Exodus imagery that they overlooked the parallel between the seals and the trumpets. And the four, three pattern is one of them. The second pattern that we see is that both the seals and the trumpets have an interlude after the sixth item, after the sixth seal and before the seventh, and after the sixth trumpet and before the seventh, they have an interlude. So we discussed the interlude of chapter seven, the 144,000 and the great multitude. That's what we spent a couple weeks on. And then we'll get to it in a few weeks. But chapter 10, verse one and 11, verse 13 is another interlude where after at the end of the sixth trumpet, it doesn't go to the seventh. You have to wait all the way until 1114 until you get to the seventh trumpet, even though the, the sixth trumpet ended in chapter nine. So clearly there's a literary parallel between the seals and the trumpet saying you need to read these together. Hmm. What is it, though, that leads you to believe that the seven trumpets are not God's wrath, which is the more of the popular understanding? Once again, you're, you're going against just the yeah. commonly held belief. And if there's one thing that we learn in seminary and hermeneutics classes, it's like if you come up with an alternate reading that you don't see throughout church history, it's like, you know, you really want to question that. Yeah, that's that's one of the fundamental principles. If, if you come up with something that nobody else has ever done, you might want to rethink this now. Mm -hmm. That's not always the case, right? We mm -hmm. see revolutions in the scholarly world. So we might have to ask like, well, why has the scholarly, even the scholarly consensus read it this way? I think part of the answer is because they're putting the seals, I'm sorry, because part of the answer is because they're putting the trumpets and the bowls together. That mm -hmm. makes sense. They have this notion of God's end times wrath, which has just been popular. So even though they don't abide by the popular thinking, they've kind of been influenced by it. Um, but the next thing is this, I'm not the only one saying this. So it's not mm -hmm. like I've come up with something totally unique. I think what I've been able to do is to synthesize the, the entire account, but others, others had said things that got me thinking down this path. As I and I already quoted Beale, um, I already quoted uh, uh, Bar. David Barr mm -hmm. uh, and Barbara Rossing, and there's uh, Resigui has said things along these lines, um, and David Balcom, I'm sorry, Richard Balcom has said things along these lines. So I'm not the only one by any means, and these are notable scholars. These aren't like people that just wrote a book and self-published type of thing. Yeah. There, so. What we noted in the seven seals is that they show what happens when humanity remains in power. And we discussed that already. And what I think happens in the seven trumpets is the same thing. The first four seals tell us what happens when humanity remains in power and the effects are felt by people. Wars, famines, pestilence, and death happens to people. The first four trumpets relay what happens when humanity relay, remains in power and the effects are felt upon the creation. So taking these together, the seals and trumpets relay what happens when humanity relays in power, remains in power to all humanity and to all of the creation. There you go. So this connects then to the cry of the martyrs in the fifth seal with the how long, exactly. which you've referenced uh, numerous times. Exactly. So the first four seals affect humanity and the suffering, and that includes God's people. 
And that's why God's people cry out, how long is this going to last? And God's answer is a little while longer because the rest of creation and all of humanity has not been redeemed yet. This is what 8, 3, and 4 are doing. In 8, 3, and 4, John interjects the prayers of the saints. And the prayers of the saints are, how long, O Lord? And the seals were like, well, a little while longer because not everyone's been redeemed. And so the seals end and the prayers of the saints come, on, come into the story, right? Because the seventh, seventh seal, and then you have the prayers of the saints by saying, yeah, not yet. Sorry, we still have to do the seven trumpets still. And as far as narrative time goes, and don't think of this as historical time, like we're dealing with a historical timeline. As far as the narrative time with is, you might be thinking that when the seventh seal happens, then the answer to how long occurs, but it doesn't. The prayers of the saints go up before God, and guess what happens? Seven trumpets follow. So the narrative is continuing, continuing on. So that means that the seven trumpets are also addressing the prayers of the saints with the question of, when are you going to bring justice? Hmm. And even the suffering, it's going to affect the people of God and yes. how, how we cry out, how long, O oh Lord? Yes, because what you see, and, and I'll, I'll tie this to global warming, and I know this is a controversial topic. I don't think you and I have actually ever talked about it, so mm -hmm. I'm not sure what your view even is. Well, I, I, I believe see... that God's going to destroy the world anyway and make a whole brand new one so we can trash <laughs> right, it. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> that, that, that's, thanks, Vinny. Uh, 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 very, that, unfortunately, has been widely, uh, widely held. I think what you see in the seventh trumpet is God's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. And I think that global warming is an indication of what we are doing to the earth is actually bringing its destruction. And we're causing chaos in the, with the warming and all the defects with superstorms. And, and that affects, or the, those effects often affect the poor and the marginalized more than anybody else. They're the ones who live by the edge of the seas and things of that nature, low-lying countries, low-lying lands. The wealthier tend to live up in the hills, although obviously we have mansions on the beaches and things like that, mm -hmm. but they still live up in the hills. And the superstorms affect the poor more often and more radically than it affects um, those who have some measure of means. So I think that's, that's part of the story. And of course, since the Christians were predominantly at the time John wrote, members of the poor and the lower classes, then they're also crying out, how long? So I, I think that's exactly the question in terms of when are you going to bring, to bring justice? Hmm. So how does this fit with your understanding uh, that the focus of the narrative is on the scroll going back to chapter five, uh, the scroll and its contents as all these seals are broken apart. Okay. So this is the key. Now the answer is going to be on the scroll. We know that the scroll is important because it was in the father's hand hmm. and it was sealed up with seven seals and seven often includes indicates like a last will and Testament or some kind of revelation of that nature. We know it was important because an angel's like, hey, who's worthy to open it? And John's weeping because no one's found worthy to open the scroll. This is chapter five. No one's found worthy to open the scroll. We know it's important because Jesus is the lamb that was slain. And because of his death and resurrection, he's worthy to open the scroll. We know that the scroll is important because John then narrates the breaking of each one of the seals one at a time. There's something on the scroll and it's it seems to be, I think it's widely agreed upon but in the scholarly world, by the way, that the scroll has the answer. It's God's will. How are the nations going to be redeemed and the creation going to be restored and Eden be renewed and the new Jerusalem come down where there's no more death, no more mourning, no more suffering, no more pain. All this is going to happen. How's that going to happen? And I think what we're going to find out, and we'll discuss this more in our next episode, is that it doesn't happen 
because the nations are brought to repentance because they see the devastation brought about by human rule. Human rule causes wars and famines and death. Human rule causes devastation and destruction upon the creation. That's the first four trump seals and the first four trumpets. And guess what happens? At the end of the sixth trumpet, it says, actually, let's, let's go ahead and read that. We have a few minutes as we finish up. At the end of the sixth trumpet, Chapter 9, you want to read, Vinny? Um, sure. Verses 20 and 21 of Revelation chapter 9. The rest of humankind were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. So here's our first indication. Humanity is not driven to repentance because of the devastation and destruction and chaos that they see from human rule. The biblical story is, hey guys, God has a better way of ruling the world. And the, the way of ruling the world is by love and sacrificial surrender for the sake of the other. And that creates peace and justice for everybody. But the nations will never have it. The nations will always rule by power and force over one another, as we said at the beginning. No kingdom can adopt a Jesus ethic, no nation, no national entity can adopt a Jesus ethic and actually survive. They're going to get destroyed. But that devastation and destruction, which causes the poor to suffer more, doesn't bring them to repentance. Mm. What does? Dun, dun, dun. Like that little musical interlude? I I like that. that, That's pretty savvy right there for me, the non-musical one of of the two. Um, well, it's because we have extra sponsors now and supporters, so we could have these sound effects. Yeah. Um, oh, by the we, way, we if anybody does want to sponsor the program, we we would love to introduce a commercial interjection there, and uh, we'd be happy to have some some commercial sponsors. And just give a thousand dollars, and we'll send a prayer hanky. Also, so <laughs> with a with a sponsorship, you get the prayer hanky and the holy water at the same time. That is a limited time fall deal. Yeah, that's a limited time offer for the first um, givers of a million dollars. Yeah. So it's for money. the children. It's for the kids. <laughs> it's for the kids. It's for the kids. Where, where, where was I? <laughs> this always happens when you're ADD and you exactly. go off on something. And you're like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Reel it back in. I, I can't reel it back in because I don't know what back end means. But uh, <laughs> enter the interlude. So remember the seven seals and seven trumpets both have an interlude after the sixth and before the seventh. Mm-hmm. And after the sixth trumpet, Chapter 10, 1 through eleven thirteen is an interlude, or eleven fourteen, however you want to do it, is an interlude. And that interlude is going to be John's being commissioned to prophesy, and then John prophesying, which is the account of the two witnesses, and that's going to be the answer. Now, John's prophesying is because he takes the scroll that's open, and he eats it. Mm. And the contents of the scroll are now digested by John, and then he's told prophesy, and John prophesies, and that's the account of the two witnesses. And as we'll look at in a few weeks, we can't do it now because you have to pay for sponsorship to be able to have like the future episodes here. Um, so we can't like give it all away now. This episode's free. So I mean, it's just the way it is. Sorry, you're out of luck, people. But what we'll see in a few episodes is at the end of the account of the two witnesses, the nations are brought to repentance. Mm. And the difference is, they're brought to repentance because the two witnesses lay down their lives. Mm. Oh, I just, I just gave the answer. Oh, we'll edit that out. That's, <laughs> all right, we'll edit that out so that they can't have it until like a future episode. Yeah. At the account, at end of the two of the two witnesses, they lay down their lives and then the nations repent. They mm. don't repent when power continues to reign 
and war, famine, and bloodshed occurs, and destruction of the sea and the trees and the land and the sun, the moon, and the stars. They don't repent then, but they do repent when God's people faithfully, lovingly, sacrificially lay down their lives for the sake of the nations. That's it. We're done. That's the whole book. That's all you need. There's, to know. there's like add-ons. We'll we'll have some like bonus episodes. Yeah, why why John have to write another uh, twelve chapters or yeah exactly? Chapters? It's just like, bonus it's material. He's like, exactly. he's like, hey, you know, I got some extra parchment left over. Let me go ahead and continue filling this whole thing out. Because in the ancient world, they just had parchment laying around. Yeah, they did. It's, it was a long scroll. Hey, yeah. <laughs> thanks for borrowing. Let me use this scroll to write my, my book on, but I'm not going to use it. All right, I'll, I'll add some stuff here to fill in the blanks. Right, yeah. Yeah, so it's bonus addendums, like the beast and the mark of the beast and all that good stuff. Got it. Yeah. Got it, good stuff. So we went through, I'm gonna, I'm we kind of looked at up. eight and nine, or we're still going to hang out in eight and nine though. That was like, can, was that just an yeah. overview? Or, okay. So we'll go through eight and nine a little bit more because there's some other questions that we need to address, but hopefully we'll be able to finish that up in one more episode and then we'll get into 10 and 11. And this is the center of the story. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. So keep reading along, digest this. This is Amen. definitely difficult. Uh, in yeah. If you're anything like me, like I'm kind of a hybrid learner. I'm audio, yeah. visual, and kinesthetic. So if you're just listening to this, this might be one of those things where you need to go back and do yep. it with a text in hand, make notes. Because we're the Bible's. it's always going to be difficult to interpret, yeah, try to understand is. something in this context. But there's just so much happening here. And like I think we mentioned in one of the introductory episodes, this is truly a literary literary masterpiece yes. that John is putting together. And so it's, it's not meant to just be understood in in its complexity in its first reading yeah you're not uh, gonna get it yep yeah so you're so supposed go to read back. it over and over blessed is the man who meditates upon the law of the lord day and night mm -hmm. he's mm -hmm. like a tree plant firmly planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers yeah and that's that's the biblical text is meant to be meditated upon so that we can get wisdom from it it's not a rule book where you're like okay i know this rule thou shall not murder and they're like hey what's murder mean exactly Mm -hmm. We have to meditate upon that to realize what does it mean to murder? And Jesus comes on and says, yeah, yeah, hatred in your heart, that's murder. Oh, I wouldn't have got that from a first reading. You only get that from meditation. So that's right. Yeah, yeah very good. All right, everyone. Hope you guys are enjoying it. We'll catch you next week as we, Lord willing, continue on into chapter eight and nine again. <laughs> yeah. Hey, should we add that there's going to be a test? If you want to get the prayer hanky and the holy water, you have to pat, like, we're going to quiz you on this stuff too. Well, because that's the only way you will know if people are actually Christians. Yeah, there you go. With a holy handshake. Yeah. And that's what John yeah. said. Send us a says. video with a holy. All right. Yeah. We yeah, you, 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 they, the world will know you are Christians by how well you do on the test. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's what I learned in Sunday school. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> so, all right. Everyone. Catch you guys next week.
want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.